Welcome to New Frontiers Church weekly message series. Thank you for joining us today. This is the last message in our short series on the book of Judges. Over the past few weeks, our Trilogy residency students have been sharing our weekly messages as we have worked our way through some of Israel's judges. I think they did great. Well done, Alka, Rebecca, and Isaac. Ian and I worked closely with them as they prepared. We reviewed drafts and we discussed the points that they wanted to raise. So we know they all worked hard, digging deeply into the text, seeking to be faithful and true to God's word. They also grappled with the implications of the words as they each brought us relevant and helpful insight from the text. It is so exciting to see our church vision to bring through new leadership, to multiply new churches, ministry and gifting being worked out in accordance with the prophetic leading that God has given us. God has blessed us with multiple generations in our church, growing together in community, young and old, committing themselves to being trained and equipped to serve. Now this is totally a plug for our full trilogy theology training semester that begins this month. If you want to join us, you need to register today. There are two classes this semester, Introduction to New Testament Greek and Life and Ministry of Jesus. You can register on the church website. Check out the bottom of the screen for the address and go to the website for more information. But this is also a recognition of the areas of church life where we have been so encouraged to see different generations serving the community together. Whether that's Gosling Meadows, the Axe Who program, our community events like our quarterly celebrations, there's one coming up next weekend, or the Mount Major outing coming up at the end of this month. We are engaging together in community to grow and go. Okay, commercial break ended. Let's get back to Judges. One of the biggest challenges the residents faced in preparing their messages was how to handle the unbelievably depressing picture painted in Judges. It's so bad that Judges has been called the graveyard of preachers, and most avoid it like the plague. One commentator described reading the book of Judges as being like having the insanity of our sin rubbed in your face while God returns again and again with mercy, which was repeatedly forgotten. Throughout this period in Israel's history, after Joshua's successful campaign to enter the Promised Land, the tribes have scattered and have undermined their commitment to their covenant with God. They've abandoned God, except when times have gotten especially bad and they've taken on just about all the sins of the pagans living in the land. It's such a sad picture. In examining Judges, the residents had to grapple with the question of how God's covenant people could so easily get trapped in a cycle of sin and destruction. They also had to address how God could possibly commend the judges he called on to rescue the people for their faith. And they were commended. Gideon, Samson, and Jephthah 
all get special mentions among the heroes of faith written by the writer to the Hebrews. The residents focused on the actual judges, so today I want to address the pattern of continuous failure of God's people. Judges 2 tells us that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. This meant, as God had explained to them in the covenant, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and sold them into the hands of their enemies. The people got themselves into a terrible mess. And when they could stand it no longer, they cried out to God for help. In his mercy, God raised up judges from among them to save them for the remaining days of the judge. However, once the judge was no longer around, they just went back to their old ways. They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And so this pattern of sin, judgment, distress, deliverance, continued only with the sins getting progressively worse each cycle until we see at the end of the book of Judges a picture of total moral collapse among God's people. Theologians call this pattern a Deuteronomic cycle because God's people kept failing time and again to meet the commitment they had made to God as established in the covenant law described in Deuteronomy. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, exactly what he wanted, when he wanted, as he wanted. And the result was tragic. The 300 year period of judges was a period of gross immorality, lawlessness, brutal oppression, corruption, injustice and violence. And most sobering of all, this wasn't a description of the pagan nations. This was the people of God. In his commentary on Judges, David Jackman observed, the outward lifestyle and environment may make that Israelite culture seem a million miles away from us today, but men's heart needs were surely little different from those of the sophisticated, urbanized world of contemporary Western man. We are not traveling to another planet when we look at the book of Judges simply looking in a mirror. Ouch! Judges exposes the depth of depravity and corruption in the human heart. It's tough reading because as Jackman says, while it speaks to a time long since past, we also see something of it in our own age and hearts. We face so much temptation to take on the sinful behaviors and idols of our own culture and to get ourselves locked into the same sin, judgment, distress, deliverance cycle. Now, I don't wanna dwell on any specific patterns of sin today. You can see them in all their gory detail in Judges if you want to. I don't want to dwell there because if we are honest, we all know what thrives in the darkness of our own hearts 
when we leave it unchecked. But thanks be to God, he has not given up on his people. In the time of judges, in his mercy and grace, God raised up judges to rescue and deliver his people. He did not give up on them, but he remembered his own commitment to them. Despite their terrible failings, when they eventually cried out to him time and again, God sent them someone to rescue and save them from their enemies. And then, for a season, the people returned to God and enjoyed a measure of peace in the land. But as we know, the cycle wasn't broken. And so once the judge died, the people returned to their sins and idolatry. And the cycle of sin, judgment, distress and deliverance just began all over again. How many of us have found ourselves falling into the same hopeless pattern or cycle in our lives? Oh no, it's happened again. I've done it again. God must be so mad with me. Lord, I am sorry. Please forgive me. I promise to try harder to do better next time, only to discover that we eventually end up back at the beginning of the loop again. We somehow believe that if we just try harder, things will be better next time we're tempted. We won't mess up, but we never get there. If we take this route, we're destined to repeat the same old cycle of behaviors until we eventually just give up. The cycle itself needs to be broken once and for all. But as we saw with the ancient Israelites, it couldn't be done by a judge, a sinful man or woman, no matter how hard they tried. The root of sin is too deep. Its hold is too strong. There has to be another way. And that's what the book of Judges is telling us. Jackman concluded that Judges, in its own way, is a faithful witness to the fact of man's frailty and to his need, not of a merely temporal deliverer, but of an eternal saviour who can effect a perfect redemption. We need an eternal saviour who can effect a perfect redemption. We need a new agreement with God, not one that just exposes our shortcomings, but a new covenant that addresses them on our behalf. And the amazing, mind-blowing thing is, God knew this all along. Doing this was always God's plan from before the beginning of time. His glorious plan is so much bigger than just forgiving us for our shortcomings and failings, for us to try harder but then just to fail again and have to go right round the whole sorry cycle once more. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus broke the cycle. In fact, he didn't just break it, he smashed it to pieces. Through his blood shed on the cross, he took upon himself the full requirements of the old covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And unlike the rescuers and priests of the old covenant, since he was without sin, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He did it once 
and for all. Jesus is the foundation of a brand new agreement with God, the new covenant. Jesus is its mediator so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus is the basis of the new covenant. It is in effect because of his sacrifice. The writer to the Hebrews goes on to say that the old covenant is but a shadow of the good things to come in Jesus. It points to what is coming. Paul explains in Galatians that the law was a guardian until Christ came. Under the new covenant in Jesus, we are no longer locked into the law's cycle of sin, judgment, distress, deliverance, but rather we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. God did what the law, weakened by our sinful natures, could never do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus could do this for us because he was holy God and holy man, yet he was sinless in his human nature. He had both the divine worth and human mortality to accomplish what no one else could. He did it once and for all. He broke the cycle for us. If you are a believer in Christ, you are forgiven. You are clothed with Christ in his righteousness. When you stand before God in judgment, you will be counted as righteous before him. He won't see the ugliness of your sin, and no matter how bad it is, rather he will look at the cloak of righteousness his son has placed upon you. But wait, some of you might be thinking, I thank God that I'm forgiven, but I still find myself stuck with these patterns of sin in my life. Well, that's because as amazing as what we have already heard so far is, this is only the first part of the story. Jesus is not just the foundation of the new covenant, he is also its goal. As John Piper puts it, he was the price that paid for our deliverance and the prize we were destined to enjoy. He redeemed us and rewarded us with himself. The promise of the new covenant is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This was always God's plan. Before the foundation of the world, through his grace and for his glory, God chose us in him to be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to himself as sons through Jesus, to the praise of his glorious grace. He has given us himself and he's, we are given to him. God's purpose in the death of Christ wasn't just about the forgiveness of sin, it includes the transformation of his people to be like him. Jesus died to secure the pardon of our sin, but he also died to sever the power of sin over us. Let me say that again. Jesus died to secure the pardon of our sin, but he also died to sever the power of sin over us. Under the new covenant, you were crucified with Christ. You died too. You weren't just pardoned, you died. By grace through faith in Jesus, we have died to our old lives and been raised with him to a new life in the Holy Spirit. And in that new life, the inclination to sin has been dethroned and a preference 
for holiness has been implanted in our hearts. Jesus secured both justification and the process of sanctification. The solution to ongoing sin in our lives is never to just try harder or make promises to ourselves or God to do better. That's just doing what we think is right in our own eyes. It's actually a form of legalism. And that leads to one of only two places, pride when we succeed for a while or dismay when we don't. The call to follow Jesus in holiness is not a call to just try harder. It's a summons to be joined in a new life to the person of Jesus himself. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, when we are called to follow Christ, we are summoned to an exclusive attachment to his person. The grace of his call bursts through all the bonds of legalism. Discipleship means adherence to Christ. The answer is to stop looking at our own lives, to stop doing what we think is right in our own eyes, to somehow please God, and to turn and look to Jesus. Fixing our eyes on him and him alone, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's, let's unpack this a bit. As incredible as it might sound, God has so exalted and glorified Jesus that the more you gaze on him and behold his glory, the more you will be transformed into his image. By the spirit indwelling us, our gaze on the glory of Christ, because of all he did for us on the cross, transforms us more and more into his likeness. Paul puts it like this. We all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In his book, Providence, John Piper summarizes it in this way. Beholding leads to becoming. Focused regarding of Christ leads to faithfully reflecting Christ. The gospel creates a new people, that's us, who rejoice in the glory of Christ as their greatest treasure, who reflect the glory of Christ as their new identity, and who are being transformed into Christ's glorious image. This transformation is, in the end, the creation of the new humanity Paul describes in Ephesians 2. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have moved from being a people trying somehow to win God's approval through our deeds and actions, but miserably failing and falling back into the same old patterns of sin, to being a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works to walk in that God created for us before the beginning of time. It's not only justification that is the work of God, sanctification is too. At the end of his letter, the writer to the Hebrews prays, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Jesus has made it such that we now desire to do God's will as a core part of our being, and he has equipped us through the Holy Spirit to do it. That's one of the reasons we feel so rotten when we sin, 
your conscience has been regenerated too. When Christ provided the foundation of the new covenant in the forgiveness of sins, he also unleashed the mighty work of the Spirit to fulfill the transformation of our lives into his likeness. Peter confirms this when he declares, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We were born again to bear fruit in our new lives. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives. We can try and complicate it, but our job is simply to cooperate with him in this. As I bring our time together to a close, the lesson for any of us stuck in a pattern of behavior that we just can't get out of is to stop trying to do the work of God in your life for him. That never works. Let God get on with his work in you. Sanctification is a process. It's a work of God in our lives. It means believing in your new identity in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone and the new has come. It means rejoicing in that new identity in Christ. The glory of Christ is your greatest treasure. You reflect his glory in your new identity and you are being transformed into his glorious image. It means yielding to your new identity in Christ. Stop listening to the lies of the enemy telling you you are not good enough. You'll never make it. You'll never really be free because you already are free because of what Christ has done. It means embracing your new identity in Christ. Embrace who you are in him. You are worthy of his calling because he has made you worthy. And so you can follow him and live your life in a way that is worthy of his calling. That means allowing your regenerated conscience to remain tender to the Holy Spirit, letting him work in your life from the inside out, renewing, restoring, and transforming you. And that means keeping short accounts with God when you trip up. Respond quickly to the Holy Spirit when he pricks your conscience. Turn back to God, repent and receive his forgiveness. Because as John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've done wrong to another, do whatever you can to humbly address the wrong you have done to them. You were created from above to enjoy your new identity in Christ. Jesus promised you an abundant life. He chose you. You weren't an afterthought. You didn't scrape your way into his kingdom. He chose you before the beginning of time for this. Let's close by agreeing with the Apostle Paul's words. I am confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great week.